0: Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 136 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Many of you will remember that a few weeks ago, we had our friend Alistair Roberts in town to teach a course on a theology of the sexes. Before that course, though, he gave a public lecture on the book of Exodus at the home of one of our junior fellows, and that lecture is what we have on today's episode. Here, Alistair is introducing some of the themes that he has in his new book alongside Andrew Wilson. The book is called Echoes of Exodus, Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture, and I'll have a link to that book in the show notes. In addition to introducing the themes of Exodus, he's also giving a presentation of how to read scripture figurally and some of the benefits of that kind of reading of the Bible. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: Thank you very much for having me. If you're interested in the book when done, there are two books that have been released in the past month or so called Echoes of Exodus, and the other one starts with the same, has the subtitle starting with the same word as ours too. So it was rather unfortunate when we discovered it. We didn't know exactly what to make of it and panic at the last moment. Do we change the title? But no, both of us kept the same title. So it's not the Brian Estelle book. It's the book with me and Andrew Wilson. But Brian Estelle's book is really good. I've read it and I'd recommend it. So what I'm going to look at this evening are ten things that we could know about we should know about the Exodus. Now I'm sure Most of you are familiar with the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. But what I want to show is that there are many stories of the Exodus in the Old Testament and also in the New. So the first point is that the deliverance from Egypt is not the first example of the Exodus pattern in the Bible. And you may have read the story of Abraham and noticed this in the past. If you look at the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12... I'll read out this passage starting verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say, You are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now after this particular story, Abram goes to the land of Canaan and he goes throughout the land of Canaan. It's divided between him and Lot. And then there's a battle against the kings of the land as he rescues Lot from their captivity. And so there are a number of themes here that might seem familiar. If you've read the story of the Exodus and are familiar with it, you'll see, for instance, a famine in the land, going to the land of Egypt to escape from the famine to find bread. Pharaoh... Threatening the bride or the child, plagues or multiplication of um, property and, uh, and numbers of the people. And all these sorts of themes are familiar from the story of the Exodus, but they appear here early on in the story of Abraham. Now, if you think about this and think about the Israelites reading this book and the book of Genesis, having experienced the Exodus what would they think of this sort of story? In many ways, there are two ways to see it, either as an event looking forward or an event that enables them to look back. And it's both of these things. On the one hand, it is an event that anticipates the greater deliverance that is to come. So Abraham walks this path that paves the way for a greater deliverance that is to come. As God delivers them from Egypt, they are experiencing something that Abram experienced. They're experiencing a walking in his footsteps that identifies them as his children. They're not people whose story is just following Abram's in sequence. They enter into something of Abram's narrative. On the other hand, Abram is given this foretaste of the experience of his descendants. God says to Abram in chapter 15, that his descendants will dwell in a foreign land for a number of years and they will return to that land at a later point. And Abram has a sort of worked example of this within his own experience as he lives this out and anticipates in a reality-filled promise what is to come to pass in the future, the greater works that God will accomplish for his descendants. So this does a number of things. It gives Abraham a prophecy or an anticipation of the future. It gives the Israelites the ability to see their experience in their father Abraham. And it connects the two characters together. And that's just one example. If you look through the story of Genesis, there are other examples. Now all of these have different elements. Not all of them have all the themes present. If you look at the story of the flood, for instance, there's there are warnings of judgment, there's unrighteousness in the land and all these other problems, and then there's the washing away of the enemies with water, the deliverance of the people of God through water, there's arrival at a mountain, the formation of a new covenant at the mountain, and then judgment. So these themes are not just found in the book of Exodus, they're found in Genesis. If you read the story of Lot and Sodom, you'll find another example of this. Let me read the passage now. Chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will not spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason that they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man-lot, and came near to break down the door, But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought him outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest you be destroyed. Now, there are many themes in here that you may notice. In the previous chapter, you have three visitors coming to Abraham. And Abraham tarries to talk with one of them, who is described as the Lord. And then these two angels go on into the city of Sodom and go to Lot's house. Now, already we see a similarity with the story of the Exodus, where the angel of the Lord meets with Moses, and Moses and Aaron are sent to Egypt to judge the city or to judge the the land. What you also see is a meal of unleavened bread, a threat at the doorway judgment on the people outside the house, protection of the people within the house. You see, on the other hand, you have these themes of darkness and light. What happens when the morning comes? What happens with the darkness, the darkness of the Passover leading to the dawn at the moment of the crossing of the Red Sea when the people are delivered? These themes play throughout the story of the Exodus, but they're also found here. The The grasping of the people and leading them out of the out of the city by the hand, by the angels. God brought his people out of Egypt by the hand, telling them to go to the mountain, to escape, to leave the city behind them, that the city will face judgment. All of these themes are familiar ones. And so we see, just as these, in these examples, you can have further ones, the story of Jacob in, the land, in um, his father-in-law's house, Laban, similar themes there and cer- certain themes of the exodus that come to the foreground. So this story of the exodus, when we reach it, it is not the first time that we've heard the themes. These themes have been playing throughout the book of Genesis, preparing us for that moment. That when that moment comes, they will be walking in the footsteps of, the, of their fathers. Abra- I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That God is the God who'd already been enacting Exodus within the story of Genesis. And so when Exodus itself comes, they know what God is like. There's something um, to be expected from him, that this is the God who delivered their forefathers, he can deliver them too. The second point, the Exodus is a pattern that can be broken down into many stages. The Exodus pattern occurs with varying degrees of prominence at various points in Scripture. So at certain points it's very clear, it's very, it's very pronounced. It's like listening to a musical theme that appears in its full expression For instance, if you're watching a film and you'll have a certain leitmotif that's associated with a particular character, and you hear that theme being expressed forcefully and you think, this is a prominent scene for this character. We're supposed to have our attention drawn to the significance of this individual. Maybe there are other people on the screen, but this is their scene, it matters. And we can recognize something of what's taking place in the narrative and where the weight is placed because of that theme that appears. On other occasions, it might just be a few notes. A few notes that hint at something taking place but you don't hear the full theme being played but you know it's there, you have a hint and you think okay, my ears are open and I'm ready for what's taking place that there might be something here that I should be recognizing and that little hint is there to point me in the right direction. So at certain points it's highly developed, at other points it's far more It's attenuated and it's only soft or barely present. The pattern of Exodus can itself be broken down into a number of connected stages, and this is James Jordan's outline, which work, his work, probably more than anyone else's, has influenced mine on the subject. I highly recommend you get into his work and through new eyes, particularly. First, a threat drives the people of God from their home. Second, there is an assault upon the woman and her seed by the serpent. Third, Deception is used to outwit the serpent. 4. God's people are enslaved. 5. God blesses his people while plaguing their oppressors. 6. God intervenes to save his people. 7. The serpent shifts blame and accuses the righteous. 8. God humiliates the false gods. 9. God's people depart with spoils from their enemies. 10. God's people are brought into the Holy Land. 11. A site of worship is established. And when we see these events in Scripture, we don't always see all of these present, but we'll usually see a number of them. So if you're reading the story of Jacob, for instance, there are many of these themes. There's the multiplication in the land uh, with um, Laban. So Laban's flocks tend to diminish while uh, Jacob's grow in number. They They become great multitudes, and his family grows, and then there's an escape at night being pursued, and then God... Judges between Laban and um, Jacob. And Jacob is delivered. And then there's a crossing of the water, a key encounter, the wrestling with the angel. And then there's things like the humiliation of the foreign gods. So if you read in that story, the story of Rachel, who deceives her father Laban concerning the household gods that she's taken. And she says that she can't get up because she's on her period. And I think... Well, that's pretty humiliating for the gods that she's sitting on. (laughs) That's part of the point. The gods are supposed to be humiliated. And we see this theme on a number of occasions within Scripture, that the foreign gods are humiliated within this Exodus motif. And we see that particularly within the main Exodus account itself. The deception of the serpent. And you may recognize that theme as an inversion of a theme in Genesis, that the woman is deceived by the serpent. And so, again and again in Scripture, we see the inversion of that theme, the sort of poetic justice that God trips up the serpent with his own wiles as the woman deceives him. So, that serpent is a tyrant or someone who's opposing God's will. Some examples. So, Sarai deceiving Pharaoh, Sarah deceiving Abimelech, Rebekah deceiving Abimelech, Rebekah even deceiving Isaac with Jacob to ensure that he gets the inheritance because he's the one who should get the blessing. We see it again in Michael deceiving Saul when he's trying to kill David. Rahab deceiving the men of Jericho so that the spies can escape. Again, two people coming to a city, a Passover-type event where she has to put a mark on her um, window. And there's an event there that is very similar. Other events, Esther deceiving Haman. And so... We see these continued, th- these continued themes, or the Hebrew midwives deceiving Pharaoh, and we think, okay, there's something going on here. We need to pay attention. There is this theme, this musical character to Scripture, where God repeated, repeats these themes again and again to show, in part, that He is in control of ev- everything that's taking place. Human beings are playing all these different parts within this story, but this story, within the story, God is at work. And he's performing his redemption, a redemption that can be seen in his hallmarks. These little touches, these artistic signs that this is his masterpiece. So If you look at certain works by various artists, there will be certain giveaways that they put in their work that help you to know that, okay, this is a, an inimitable style of this particular artist. This is the way he does it or she does it. And you can see in that style that this is not anyone else. This is that particular artist. And you're paying attention for those features much of the time. And this is what we see within the events of the Exodus and the other Exodus events in Scripture. Third point. It is an event in which God discloses his identity. God reveals his covenant identity to his people in the context of the Exodus. So the event of the Exodus begins um, God's appearance in the burning bush. It begins with God revealing his name to his name to Moses. And also, he reveals his covenant identity, God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God is not a newcomer to the scene, he's been active throughout the book of Genesis, but yet he reveals something new about himself. He reveals his covenant name. And alongside that, there's this declaration of what he's going to do for his people. He is the God who has delivered the forefathers, but he's going to do something even greater. And he's going to show his power over the gods of the Egyptians, over Pharaoh, and he's going to set his people free. Now, this is a very bold thing to do. It's as if this great artist has just started by writing his name in the corner of the canvas. And you're waiting for the rest of the canvas to be filled out, but the name is put there prominently at the very beginning. So that you know who this is, and everything that happens afterwards, it will be an outworking of that identity that God's identity is seen in the way that he delivers his people, the way that he complete, com- fulfills his promises, promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and the way that he is consistent with the way that he has worked in the past. So this is the God who is faithful to his covenant. Even after 400 years, this is the God who is, the God who is consistent with his patterns of working, and this is the God who performs works which are greater than anything he has ever done before. The God who moves from um, grace to grace, from um, remarkable work to even more remarkable work. And so the event of the Exodus is an event in which God displays his character to his people. It's not just a deliverance to achieve the end of setting his people free. It's about declaring who he is so that we can know who God is. And throughout the Exodus, God demonstrates his power over the gods of the Egyptians. So if you look at the events of the Exodus, there's all these plagues, and you can see the plagues stage by stage, as it were, through the whole house of Egypt, the whole world in which they inhabit. And each stage of that world, the things that made sense to them, the things that gave them order and the sense of reality in their lives, the Nile at the heart of their life, to the sun above them, every single aspect of their world is unraveled by God's power. God shows his power over every single one of the gods that they assign to these various realms. And God proves his power over the gods of the Egyptians. He defeats them. This is one of the points that the story of the Exodus makes, that it's not just God setting his people free from the Egyptians. It's God proving his power in every single arena of the creation. That this is the God of creation, but he's also the God who proves his power over creation in providential acts of judgment. It's not just that he has abandoned his creation to natural forces or to other deities, lesser deities, but he is in control of every aspect of his world and he demonstrates this within the event of the Exodus. By the time that the people arrive in Sinai, they have received a revelation of the depths of God's faithfulness, of his power over the creation. And at Sinai, something more happens, that God forms a covenant with them, a marriage relationship, as it were, with his people, to show that it's not just about keeping his promises that he has made in the past, but forming a deep union with them and having his presence in their midst. And so there's a, an increased revelation of God's identity, the revelation of his name, the revelation of his power over every arena of his creation, and then a deepening of his relationship with his people in the formation of a covenant. And so when we see the law, it begins with a reminder of all of this. The law is predicated upon this revelation of God's identity. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, that the, out of the house of bondage, that this is the God you are worshipping, a God who has demonstrated himself in all these different ways, the God who created the world in this way, and the God who has proved his power over this world through the Exodus. Fourth, The Exodus is institutionalized and made foundational for the future self-understanding of the people of God. One of the things that you'll find interesting as you're reading through the story of the Exodus, the narrative in Exodus and the opening chapters prior to the crossing of the Red Sea, is in chapter 12 there's a shift. So to that point you're reading these events told blow by blow through the historical account. And then when you reach the start of chapter 12 it says... That God gave this particular spoke to Moses and Aaron at this particular time when they were in the land of Egypt. And you think we know we're in the land of Egypt. This seems to be a disjunction from the narrative that we've had so far. There's as if that particular point of the narrative is taken out, and we go forward in time, and then we're looking back into that particular point. So it's a resituation of the reader or the hearer within the narrative flow. So to that point, you've been taken back into that time and you're following the events blow by blow. And then you reach that point and you're taken out and then you're looking back. And what happens within that chapter? It's the institution of the Passover celebration. And that's significant. Because the Passover celebration is not just something that happens at that original occasion that God tells his people to celebrate this particular event. Rather, it's something that's instituted for every single future year that they should celebrate this event and look back and recall what took place in the exodus and so that vantage point is not accidental it shows that the story of the exodus is one that is situated within the ongoing life of the people of god something that's instituted within their within their ongoing history it's not just an event that is past it's an event that they recall year upon year as they look back to what god has done in the past and they celebrate this event, this meal, that recalls all of that, that memorializes it. And, as we'll see, gives a sort of, it draws their attention back, but also gives them an impetus forward. And so this grounds Israel's self-understanding within the past event, and it helps them to live out of that. Fifth, the Exodus and the Exodus pattern help us to understand the meaning of and the connections between events part of the power of figural reading when we look through Scripture and typology and all these sorts of things, which are about looking for the patterns and the connections and the ongoing themes and motifs that we see in Scripture, is that it shows us that Scripture is not just these isolated events that are just placed in this random sequence. Rather, Scripture is about a symphony of God's work of redemption. And all these different movements that may seem to be detached and independent even, even if they appear to maybe have a sequential ordering that connects them together, there's something more than that, that they are connected on a deeper level, that they have a, this repeating theme, this unifying theme, and a number of unifying themes. Exodus is not the only unifying theme. But these themes reveal the unity of the text the connections of these different passages, and that certain characters, when they're acting, they're not just acting as individuals within a story all of their own. They're acting as characters within the big story of God's dealings with his people over time. And so it helps us to understand the connection between events. It also helps us to understand the meanings of events. So, for instance, if you read the story of Michael and David and Saul, Saul tries to take... Um, David, he wants to take his life and Michael, Saul's daughter, who's married to David, tries to protect David. So what she does is she gets a household guard, and why on earth she had a household guard, I don't know why, and puts some goat's hair on it, puts it in the bed so it looks like David, and then lets David down through the window and he escapes. Now it's a very small episode but there are a number of themes taking place there, and you may recognize them from other stories. So goat's hair used to disguise someone. That's the story of of Rebekah and her son disguising Jacob as Esau. What about the theme of um, the household guard being used as a means of deception for the father-in-law? It's the story of Rachel and Laban. What about the story of the daughter of the king rescuing the promised child or the promised inheritor? That's the story of Pharaoh's daughter and the deliverance of Moses. And these themes are familiar ones to us. And there's another one there, which is the story of Rahab, letting down the spies through the window. And so that helps us to understand what's taking place in that story in 1 Samuel. One of the things it does is help us to understand who Saul is within that story. He's Pharaoh. He's like the king of the Canaanites. The, um, the men of the king of Jericho, he's a Canaanite king. He's aligned with that character. He's Laban, the oppressive father-in-law. He's also, he's also Isaac, who will not give the blessing to the right son. And so this helps us to understand what's taking place within that story. That again, it's not just an isolated narrative. But beyond not just being an isolated narrative, It is unpacked by the themes that are revealed within it. Another example. If you think about two prophets exchanging roles or exchanging ministries on the banks of the Jordan, who would you think of? You may think about Jesus and John the Baptist. Or you could think about Moses and Joshua. Or, for that matter, you could think about Elijah and Elisha. Now... When you see that connection, you think, okay, is there anything more to this? And you look more closely and you think, what other parallels can we see? Elijah and Moses and John the Baptist are all prophets of the wilderness. Prophets that were based in the wilderness who are succeeded by a prophet who ministers primarily within the land. Again, there are other parallels. Elisha performs miracles and multiplication of bread. Jesus performs miracles and multiplication of bread. Raising a people from the dead, again, in Elisha and in Jesus. What other themes can be seen? For instance, the crossing of the Jordan, miraculously. We see that in the story of Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings 2. And we also see it in the story of Moses crossing the Red Sea and then later on Joshua crossing the Jordan, miraculously. So this helps us to understand some of the things that are going on, that these Two characters connect, these three sets of two characters connect, and they help us to understand what each is doing. That Jesus is to John as Elisha is to Elijah, or as Joshua is to Moses. John the Baptist is often defined or described as the Elijah that was to come. He's described in ways that are reminiscent of Elijah, the way he's clothed with camel skin, the things that he eats, the the sort of guy he is. He's someone who spends his life in opposition to Herod and his wife, just just as Elijah spent his life in opposition to Ahab and Jezebel. And then we think, are there further connections here? Ahab and Jezebel, for instance, we can read the story of Naboth's vineyard and we see there are themes there that are reminiscent as well. Naboth's vineyard is a vineyard. That's a significant thing. But what does Ahab want to do with Naboth's vineyard? He wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. Now, where else do we read about vegetable gardens? It's the way that, Israel, it's the way that Egypt is described. Egypt is a vegetable garden. Israel is a vineyard. And so this is helping us to understand part of what's taking place in the story, that Ahab wants to turn Israel into a sort of Egypt. That Ahab is a character like Herod. He's a character like Pharaoh. And Herod is a character like Pharaoh in the story of John the Baptist. And these themes develop and they're related to each other. And together, they help us to unpack what's taking place. And all of this is something that God has put within scripture to reveal the meaning of what he's declaring within it. Sixth, the exodus is a basis for prophetic expectation. The, memorialia- the memorialization of the exodus isn't merely backwards looking, as if it's some event that happened long in the past, maybe retreats in the rearview mirror of your life, and okay, maybe God's concerned about that, just remember this thing I did for you back then, um, and memorialize this every now and again. It's more than that. It's more even than the way that we'll memorialise these significant events within the lives of our nations. I mean, we have in the UK, we celebrate November the 5th. Remember, remember the 5th and remember gunpowder treason and plot. The way that we remember Guy Fawkes' attempts to blow up the Houses of Parliament and how he was caught at the last moment and the King and Parliament were saved from this Catholic plot. Now, it's an event that we remember year by year, and we think that was a great deliverance, that was an amazing amazing thing, but it doesn't have quite the same forward energy that we see within the event of the Exodus. If you read the prophets, what you'll see again and again is the event of the Exodus is an anticipation of a greater Exodus that's still to come, particularly within the book of Isaiah. This greater new Exodus is something that's anticipated. And so God will bring about for his people in the future something that is similar to what has taken place in the past, the same sort of character, but on a far grander scale. And so just as Abraham's exodus was a a sort of trailer for the event of the exodus in the book of Exodus itself, that exodus is but an anticipation of a greater exodus that's still to come. God's good purpose for his people, that they being liberated from their enemies might serve him without fear all the days of their life, is something that is going to be achieved on a far grander scale. And so when they celebrate Exodus in the celebration of the Passover, they're looking forward, not just back. They're looking forward to this greater event that God will perform when he delivers, him, when he delivers his people from slavery. And so the memory of the Exodus is charged with hope and expectation. Will it be this year? Will it be next year? Will it be in my lifetime that God will perform this grander exodus? Seven, the exodus pattern provides us with a framework within which to understand the work of Christ. Now, if you read every, pretty much every single one of the Gospels, each one of them begins in a slightly different way, and each one helps us to understand Christ in terms of exodus. So whether that's the story of Matthew, Matthew beginning with Joseph, this character who maybe reminds you of the Old Testament Joseph, having dreams and visions and leading people into Egypt. There are similar themes there. And then in in Matthew 2.15, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now. Matthew, you're misusing Hosea there. That's not what Hosea means. Hosea is referring to that event in the past. Yes, he's referring to that event in the past, but that event rhymes with what God is doing now. That the experience of Christ, what God is doing with his son, taking his son out of Egypt, is on a grander scale what he did with Egypt and what he did with his people in the Exodus. So it's helping you to recognize the connection between those events, that the deliverance of Christ from the king who's trying to kill the baby boys is, on a grander scale, what God was doing in the original Exodus. And there are some some verses that may grab your attention here. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, to those who sought the young child, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Egypt. If you read Exodus, you'll see a very similar verse referred to Moses. I can find this in Exodus chapter 4. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, For all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And so we're supposed to recognize these connections. Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, again and followed by 40 days in the wilderness. That might remind you of some events that we see in the Old Testament. Um, The events of the wilderness wanderings for 40 years, Christ is repeating that in some way, but he's repeating it and setting it straight. What went wrong the first time? Christ is setting right. In Luke, we begin with the story of Mary and the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the vision in the temple. Now, that might remind you, first of all, of 1 Samuel. There's the Magnificat, which is very similar to the prayer of Hannah. But that theme is based upon Exodus too. Why is it? that the great works of God, the foundation of the story of the gospel, the story of the kingdom, or the story of the exodus, all begin with women bearing sons that will be the deliverers. This struggle against the tyrant, or this struggle against these unfaithful rulers of God's people, or these people who are just dull to God's word. In the beginning of 1 Samuel, we read about Eli, that there's been no word of God in the land, or the word of God was rare in the land. His eyes were growing dim, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, all of these things are, as it were, light. These flickering lights that are about to go out and about to have everything go wrong as the Ark of the Covenant is taken. Again, that's an Exodus story. The Ark of the Covenant is taken into the land of the Philistines. The Philistines are associated with the Egyptians in um, Genesis 10. And God plagues the Philistines in every single one of these places. They move from city to city and then their great God Dagon is defeated and his head is removed. And so we see these themes being played out in that story. But getting back to the story of Hannah, that story reminds us of Jochebed, of Miriam, of the Hebrew midwives and all these characters. And so there are these themes that repeat there too. In John... It's another thing. It's the revelation of God to Moses in that theophany on Mount Sinai. That that glory that was seen in the Old Covenant that was represented through the law, a secondhand um, glory, that there's a greater glory that has come in Jesus Christ. Goodness, full of goodness and truth. The way that God declared his name on Mount Sinai, that is who Christ is. That what Moses saw on Mount Sinai, and we received second-hand as it were through the law, is what is revealed firsthand through Jesus Christ. And so all of this gives us a framework within which to understand what Jesus does. And these themes are very prominent within the Gospels. So if you come to Luke 9, when it talks about the event of the transfiguration, Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah on the mount, and he talks to them about their departure, or literally, the exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now many people think of that that's just his death. It's more than just his death. It's the whole event of delivering a people. It's Christ ripping, over, uh, ripping open the waters of the abyss and leading his people through so that we might walk through death itself on dry land and come out the other side. That we might, as those who have been pursued by the Pharaoh of Satan and the sins that accompany him, that we might be those who are delivered, that he might be drowned in these waters of death and that we might be brought through to the new creation on the other side. It's as we are led by the Spirit through the wilderness to the promised land. Again, these are themes that we see within the New Testament. Pentecost is like Sinai. The giving of the Spirit parallel to the giving of the law. Three thousand die at Sinai. Three thousand are cut to the heart at Pentecost and are saved. And so the leader of the people ascends to God's presence on high and then delivers this gift to the people, the law through Moses, the spirit through Jesus Christ. Eight, the Exodus reveals the unity of Scripture and of the work of redemption to which it bears witness. So the presence of these recurring themes of Exodus throughout the biblical text, both Old and New Testament, show that Scripture is not just a collection of isolated texts, but is a unified drama of redemption. And throughout it, these are all connected and brought to a head and a climax in Jesus Christ. Such patterns, they should increase our confidence in Scripture, that this isn't the sort of thing that is just created by human minds. This is something grander than that. And when you hear these themes in place after place, you begin to recognize there's something more going on here, that these aren't just stories and folklore and legends. This is a revelation of God's dealings in history. And there's a glory within these texts that is revealed as we recognise this theme. The unity of the biblical witness and of the drama of redemption to which it bears witness also underlines the relevance of Old Testament narrative of Exodus to the people of God in the 21st century, that this is our story. And so when the people of Israel, after having experienced the Exodus, read the story of Abraham, they saw. He went through this sort of, a, he went this sort of a, exodus experience. So maybe we can see our experience within his. There's a connection between us and him, that we are his children and we are walking in his footsteps. And in the same way, when we look back at the story of the exodus, it is our story. It is a story that we belong to. It is a story that we find meaning in our lives within. Nine, both baptism and the Lord's Supper draw upon an exodus pattern. If you read the story of Christ, the story of Christ can be told as the story of three baptisms. The baptism of Christ in the Jordan, the baptism of his death, and then the baptism of the church at Pentecost as Christ baptises his people. And our baptism is in many ways an entrance into each one of these baptisms. And each of these baptisms draws upon the pattern of the exodus in various ways. So the baptism by John recalls both the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan, the bookends of that period in the wilderness. It occurs before 40 days of testing in the wilderness, akin to Israel's 40 years of testing in the wilderness. It's also the transition from the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus, as the ministry of Moses is transitioned to the ministry of Joshua at the banks of the Jordan before they enter into the promised land. And so these themes are connected. The baptism of Christ's death recalls the events surrounding the Passover at which time it occurs. Christ tears open the deep of death in his resurrection and so that we can, as the faithful, pass through to the other side. Now, there's more going on there as well. One of the things you notice, are talked about institution of the Passover as part of the event of the Exodus. There's also the institution of the law of the firstborn. If you read the whole story of the Exodus and pay attention, you'll see there's a lot going on about childbirth here. Israel groaning in birth. And then the experience of the Hebrew midwives, of Jochebed and Miriam and all these other characters, and the baby boys, these are not unconnected. What's taking place on that smaller level with the story of Jochebed and the Hebrew midwives is taking place on the larger level of the story of Israel. Israel is my firstborn son, and God will take that firstborn son from Egypt. This is all this period sandwiched in darkness. It's a, it's a dark time, as it were, and we have the darkness of the Passover, and we have the darkness of... All these events are about the birth of the firstborn son. And when the womb is opened, that child is dedicated to the Lord. Now, why do we have that law at that particular point? Because the womb is opened immediately after that. As they cross the Red Sea, the waters are broken, they pass through this narrow channel, and they enter into light. From the darkness, the light comes up and then they're this new people that are swaddled through the wilderness as God leads them towards the promised land. And so it's a story of the birth of a child. The story of the gospel is similar to that as well, that Christ's death, he is the firstborn from the dead. He transforms the, the barren womb of the tomb into a fertile womb a womb that each one of us will be born through. The principle of generation in the resurrection is resurrection, not childbirth in the way that we have it within this age. And the baptism of the church with the spirit at Pentecost recalls the giving of the law and the establishment of the tabernacle at Sinai as God descends upon this building and his presence is present within it. It also recalls the event with Moses and the 70 elders as Moses struggles to bear the weight of the people And God takes of the spirit upon him and places it upon the 70 elders. And there are some of these elders who aren't present with Moses at the time. They're in the camp, Eldad and Medad. And Joshua says, So we stop these people prophesying? Because they're prophesying within this event. And he wonders, should we stop them? Should this be taking place? And Moses said, would that all the people of God were prophets. And Joel takes up that theme, and he says that they will all prophesy, your sons and your daughters. Your old men and your um, old women, they'll all prophesy. And this is what is told at the day of Pentecost. And so all these themes are connected. The threefold baptism is all recalling the events of the Old Testament. The Lord's Supper was instituted as a Passover meal. So Christ celebrates a Passover meal with his disciples at the Last Supper and institutes that as the Lord's Supper, something that we recall. But not just to recall, to memorialise his death, but to do that until he comes. Again, it is an event charged with anticipation, that we memorialise the Lord's death until he comes, and that event is an anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not just a a looking back to what has happened in the past, but a looking forward to what he is about to accomplish. When Paul speaks about the church's practice of baptism and the supper, he relates both to the exodus. We are baptized into Christ, much as Israel was baptized into Moses, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 10. They all drank the same, ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the rock, and that rock was Christ. He's trying to connect the experience of the Israelites with the experience of the church, that we experience the same thing. And comparing our celebration of the feast of the Passover with Christ, the lamb who was sacrificed for us, and we must celebrate that feast. Finally, the Exodus gives us a sense of our place in God's work of redemption. Now, the presence of the Exodus pattern in the New Testament, not least in the teaching concerning the baptism and the Lord's Supper, is a means by which we are brought into an understanding of where we stand in relationship to God's purpose. That this isn't just events that happened to them back there, but we are plugged into it here and now, that this is our story. And we read the Bible through the lens of our experience, our being included within us. We read the story of the Bible from within. And this is part of the point of Exodus, that the, Exodus isn't just this past event. It's something that is this repeated pattern for the people of God. And it's a pattern that we are included in through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and as we recall these events. And through recalling that, the way that we read the Bible will change. It won't just be this story of what happened to them back then, and maybe we seek for hopeful parallels with our lives, but it's a story that is continuing into our communities and our lives here and now. It's not just a past event, but it has a future-driven energy and impetus that we are included within. It is something that connects with each one of us, that our lives, that our bodies are taken up within it. That our bodies as we experience baptism, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, they're being prepared for resurrection, marked out for resurrection, baptised into Christ's death so that led by the Spirit through this a- the wilderness of this age, we might enter into the promised land of the age to come. And this is the paradigm that the New Testament epistles continually draw to, uh, draw our attention to. That Jesus is the one who gives his people rest in Hebrews. That we come to the law after being washed in baptism in the book of Romans. And then the spirit is given. And the spirit is the one who leads us through this age to the new creation. So again, a similar theme. We face the temptation of returning to Egypt. We face the testing that Israel experienced within the wilderness But we are called to follow our master who has overcome the ruler of this age. So when we read the story of the Exodus, we're not just reading events that happened to them in the past, but we're reading events that we are to resonate with, that these are written for our example, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Again, this is not just an event that is a story of past figures. This is the story of the God who has revealed himself through this event. The God who put his name to this event. And this is the God who is active here and now within our lives. And we are called to enter into that. In the Exodus story and the many other stories that share its patterns, the scripture looks us directly in the eyes. Not just as this event or this story that's written to past ages, to generations, a thousand, two thousand years ago, but as stories that speak to us today about our experience, about our place within God's story, and about the future that he has prepared for us. The themes of redemption disclosed in these narratives resonate with those of the new exodus that we have been caught up into by the work of Christ. The one who, at the Passover, went through death and came out the other side, the firstborn from the dead. The one who, 50 days afterwards, gave his spirit at this new covenant event, the event of Pentecost, and formed his church with this tabernacle, as it were, of his presence. And so this is where we are within the story. When we hear Exodus stories, we are listening to variations within the one great story. A story that finds its climax in the great Exodus, as through the Passover sacrifice of the Son, the Father delivers us from the kingdom of Satan, leading us by the Spirit into the new creation. Amen. Amen. Mm. I'm not sure if we have time for questions, but I'd be delighted to answer any questions that people might have yeah, so um, the applicability of Exodus as
0: an analogy um, is it felt more or less in uh, 21st century West or 20th century Europe or um, or is it pretty much equally, should be equally felt, you're saying, the analogy, throughout
1: the history of civilization. Um, in many ways we have repeating patterns, for instance, in the yearly calendar, or certain events within our lives that we repeat. So, for instance, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, hopefully we're celebrating it week by week, and yet each celebration is slightly different. Each celebration will carry a different flavour, depending, for instance, on the time of the year it's at, the certain personal events that we bring to it. Um, And so there are over-layered patterns in time that I think give it a particular resonance at certain points in our lives and bring out certain facets of it that would not be so prominent at other times. And so it's a many-faceted event. So as I've talked about here, there are certain times when we will feel the temptation themes, the themes of being in the wilderness, the themes of being bombarded with opposition, that, that Christ, for instance, has set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. That's something we'll feel very keenly at certain points. At other points, it will be the theme of entrance into promise, or it might be the theme of deliverance from Satan. Now, one of the things I found interesting in looking at the way I gave some thought to the way that the early church fathers used these themes They didn't use it in quite the same way as um, Paul uses it. Paul focuses very much on the prospective meaning of what I was looking at, particularly the Red Sea crossing. Paul thinks about it as being baptised into Moses, as this entrance into this um, new stage, as it were, this birth or whatever that leads you into a new stage. Whereas for the early church fathers, it was the drowning of Pharaoh. That was the key point. And so... At certain points, we'll feel certain things more keenly. Now, part of the point of a great symbol like this, or a narrative type, is that it admits a great many different ways of approaching it. All of them right, but certain ones more prominent in certain situations. And so within our particular situation where we feel, maybe, that we are in the situation of being surrounded by a pharaoh-like society, we will feel certain things that we can gain certain things from that story that help us to interpret our experience and give a charge to what we are facing within our specific situations. Maybe at certain points in your life when you've experienced a new birth, you'll experience it in a very different way. Um, So I think these personal patterns, these yearly patterns, these cultural patterns and these generational patterns are all things that we bring to the text. So it's not... Something that we'll feel more keenly or less keenly, but there are different aspects that will come to the fore at different points.
0: Thank you. I grew up like a lot of the uh, situations in which deception was used. There's always something to be the,
1: when I'm reading through, probably the hardest things to kind of deal with sometimes, like that being part of God's story. In fact, like he's kind of panning it out. Yep. I am just wondering. When you are like tying these things together, when you do run across things that seem counter to his character, him being a got a truth, and yet here he's like using these like repeated kind of deceptions, like like Abram with his wife, that's always something really bizarre. Yes. What the heck's going on? there? <laughs> Particularly since you have that story three times, yeah. um, in various forms, because you have yeah. the story with Abimelech later on, yeah. and then the same story a similar story with Abimelech later on in the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Yes. Yeah, so, like, I guess when when you're when you're tying those things together, do you look at that any differently? I, I noticed one of the things you were talking about was like sort of the serpent being see yeah is like an inverse thing to like the fall. Um, like I guess do you, do you think about that being
0: entirely in line with everything that God's doing, or is it sort of like <coughs> I guess just, uh, I'm not sure exactly my question.
1: Yes. I I think I know what what you're pointing at. I I think within Scripture there is justification of deception on certain occasions. That there is a covenant of truth, as it were, between people that should generally be maintained. But when there is a breach, when someone, for instance, Pharaoh trying to kill the baby boys that covenant has been breached, and you do not owe that person truth. And I think that is something that helps us to understand what's taking place. That It's not just this abstract demand that we should speak truth at all times. Truth is a communicative thing that exists between people. This duty to be truthful to people is something that is predicated upon the fact that there is some bond there, that there is some sense that we are seeking this communicative good, which is truthful relations. Now, if someone's trying to destroy the people of God, if someone's trying to kill baby boys, that no longer pertains. And so I think within Scripture, there is deception at that point that is appropriate. Now, this is not something that we should always be looking for. This is not, <laughs> this, this is not something that is treated as a general um, a general. Rationalization of every time we want to deny the truth to someone. Generally, we are responsible to give someone truthful communication that is not just technically true, but is genuinely communicative. And in those occasions when it's not, those rare occasions, we have to take those situations very seriously and very carefully. But those occasions in scripture are taken as appropriate. I think. The other thing to notice is that there are themes of wisdom within Scripture. Some themes are associated with kingship, so the themes of Solomon's wisdom, this wisdom of judgment to see and to judge. But then there's also a tradition of shrewdness, the ability of the person who does not have much power to outwit those with great power. And that is particularly associated with women who outwit tyrants. We see that on a number of occasions. There are a few other occasions that it's used of men. For instance, David um, outwitting um, Abimelech, this ability to, to pretend to pretend that he's mad, and then later on when he's killing um, he's killing the enemies of God's people while presuming to presumably being on the side of the Philistines. Now there's deception taking place there, um, but again it's deception that. Presumes that there is this warlike situation that God's people are being opposed by someone who wants to destroy them. And there's no truth owed within that situation. And so deception in wartime is appropriate under those conditions that we have to be very careful.
0: So, as we're called to be 21st century theologians and scholars, I think I would echo Schaefer a little bit and say, How should we now live? What do you see as the, the Babylon as the pharaoh we're facing now and what do you see as potentially deliverance from that as well?
1: It depends where we are in the story. I think often maybe we are in that position where we are going to be oppressed for many, many centuries or three or more centuries, something like that. And we are called to multiply under that though. And that challenge is a difficult one but we'll be forming bricks from unpromising materials, but we will be those who are growing under, and under a sort of bondage and maturing under that and then crying out to God within it. And so that may, might be where we are. Um, I think within Western society, there is certainly something we can hear of our experience in a pharaoh arising that did not know Joseph. I think there is a lot that we can resonate with there. Um, we've lived in societies that have known the blessing of God, and yet there are leaders and there are um, forces arising within our society in positions of power, and they don't know that. That's We are post-Christian in that sense, but not post-Christian in the sense that this is the end of the story. It's a dark period, but that dark period was the passage to something new and greater for which they had to set the seeds at that point of time. And so I think we may find ourselves in a certain position of maybe retreat, but growth and consolidation in other ways. And so people have talked about things like the Benedict Option and these other situations, these other approaches to respond to our cultural um, challenges. I don't think that there is any, Surefire way to respond because we are exposed like no previous generation to wide cultural forces just through the media that we, we have. And so it's very difficult to retain, um, to kind of cut ourselves off from, to quarantine ourselves from the society. Rather, what we need to do, I think, is to develop a strong, what I've described as a strong skin. A skin enables you to be present within a situation that is not sterile, that is dangerous in many ways, without being in constant immune reaction against it, without needing to sterilize it, without needing to quarantine yourself away from it, or without succumbing to it. And so that skin is something that will come through defining ourselves very clearly around consolidating our identity around God's Word, the practice of um, the Lord's Supper, baptism, meeting together, reading scripture, memorializing these events that God has performed in the past, joining together in prayer, these sorts of things consolidate our identity and they give us also this, I suppose, this body with a homeostatic, um, this dynamic that is not dependent upon all the things that are going on around. And that's what we need if we face this current age. And in part... One of the problems I have with things like the Benedict Option is the response to these things. It's very much, it's not supposed to be about retreat, and that's stressed by Rod Rare, but that tends to be the tone that you are left with. But often the way that we become strong is by engagement, by going out, by, um, we consolidate the church as we engage in mission often. One of the things I've found within my own experience within churches is that the church often becomes strongest as a unit as it finds a cause that it is engaged with very strongly within its community. And when we lack that and we tend to retreat and we tend to stagnate, and so I think we need to, first of all, develop that core identity and then also engage in mission, have a purpose, have. something that is not just reacting against the society all the time, which is what we tend to do, but is rather something that arises positively from what the identity that God gives us. That's part of what it means to live according to Exodus in the 21st century, that we're not primarily taking our bearings from cultural analysis of our immediate situation, but from the deep roots, the deep wellsprings of God's story. And then we use that We act from out of that into our society.
0: I I like the analogy you drew to to homeostasis. Um, And it it implies a sort of organism that can can maintain itself, maintain its own processes despite what may be going on
1: in its environment. Um, And and I, I think you also sort of touched on this notion of reactionary posture as opposed to focus on being who we are. Um, I feel like we're often um, reacting in a sort of resentful, even
0: petulant way to yep. the world, for being the world, for having the <laughs> to be the world, um,
1: rather than focused on what it means to be the church. Uh, could you respond to that? I think that's absolutely right, that so much of Our discourse as Christians is focused upon that reaction, that tension, that um, antagonism with the world, when we need to be rooted very clearly within a defined what are we for? What do we have at our heart? It's not this reaction against the world, rather what we have at our heart is what God has done for us, who God says that we are, not our battle with Pharaoh. And we will be firmer against Pharaoh when we are not just reacting against him, but responding to him out of God's truth. And so much of what we have within our society is this instinctive reaction and this concern to, um, that we can only be healthy as the church as we sterilize the world. <laughs> but we're not going to sterilize the world. We're not going to have a Christian culture that's going to make everything safe for us. Um, we are going to have to learn to live well-defined Christian lives in a hostile age. And coming from a European context where far more advanced down this, this path, um, it's not easy, but there's a lot to be gained from it. It strengthens us because we have to cope with these um, forces that are battering us. We can't just um, fall back upon a safe society where there are no hostile things facing us. And so I think... It also involves, it involves a need for not that constant immune reaction but a strong skin and also backbone and um, people who are firm leaders and people within the church who are able to coordinate us in a way that we're not just reacting and, but we're able to act in a in a um, convinced and in a determined and a firm and robust manner that is a response rather than a reaction. And so much of our lives now is lived in this pace and this rapid reaction and people within our society are driven by that too. And they're driven crazy by it. If you look on the internet, if you look, there is this ongoing culture war and people are torn up by it. You can see the way that people Their minds are caught up in it and they're unsettled and they're emotionally fraught because of all these tensions. And as Christians, we should not be defined by this. And we have become defined by it so often. We've become defined by who we are in the culture wars. Now, there are important things to stand for, but if we are defined by our fights, we will miss so much. One of the things I've consistently returned to in my work is the way that in so many of the subjects that we speak about, for instance on sexuality, our conversation is driven by opposing what's out there rather than upon drawing upon what God has given us at its very heart. Now what God has given us at the heart of Scripture is a very positive vision it's not about don't do this, don't do that. It's your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is set apart for resurrection. Your body is the limbs and organs of Christ. And so you live in this way because if you look at your body, your body is something remarkable. Whatever people might say about it, whatever people might look at and see, whatever people, whatever you might feel about your own mortality, whatever people might have done to you, whatever you might have done with it, That is who you are. And now that's a very different way from living reactively against the sexual messages within our age. And so I think more than anything else, we need to ground ourselves within Scripture and move ourselves away from this just constant antagonism. And I think as people see that as well within the society, they'll want some of that because people are driven crazy online and elsewhere because they're caught up in this antagonism. And yet, we can give a peace that the world cannot give within these situations.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode, and as always, thank you so much for listening.